it was then not only what world do I wish to create, what am I willing to do for that world, but what am I willing to give up? Hmm. That is key. What are you willing to give up? What am I willing to sacrifice? Not just a trade-off, not just I'll get to it later. What am I willing to, to sacrifice, to create, to invent, to risk in order to pursue the idea of that future world? I'm Andrew Seligson. And I'm Emily Shields, and this is the Compact Nation podcast. We unfortunately do not have our co-host Marisol Morales with us today. We're going to make do in her absence. I hope we didn't just lose a ton of listeners who are here only for Marisol, but I fear that may be the case. It could be, but if you are just a Marisol fangirl or fanboy, she you will hear her voice on this podcast. She is not with us as we are recording this opening, but she will be present for the interview. So don't don't hit the stop button and toss your phone out the car window or whatever don't you want to do. Don't despair. Skip forward 30 seconds at a time if you don't want to hear from us. <laughs> but, right. but we do have some exciting updates um, across the compact nation. So just sort of hope everybody's um, surviving the summer and planning for fall as best as can be. I continue to be impressed with how hard everyone is working um, to get ready for that as best we can. So just kind of a shout out to everybody amid amid those um, significant issues at the moment. And we do have several summer opportunities going on to help support folks in that. So Andrew, do you just want to talk about what we have available yet this summer for some virtual learning? Absolutely. Uh, we, so yeah, we've, we, one, one thing I'll say too, is that we'll have some more new and exciting things coming down the pike very soon that relate to kind of responding to everything crazy that's happening in our world and trying to be useful to people in the context of teaching and learning uh, in these settings. Right now, uh, if you go to our website, compact.org, you can learn about what we call our fusion course, which is an opportunity to learn about integrating community and civic engagement into online teaching. We know that a lot of people are doing some online teaching in many cases for the first time this fall and next spring. And so this is an opportunity to, to think about that and, and, uh, learn some strategies for doing it effectively and there's still some spaces available. So that's one thing you can check out. Also our summer webinar series, which is ongoing and focuses on a range of issues and topics connected to kind of emergent issues because of <laughs> spread of the virus, uh, kinds of issues that are front burner for people uh, more broadly, substantively. So go to those places, check that out, uh, learn about those opportunities. I also just wanted to mention that our uh, impact awards are open, the nominations. So go and check those out. There are award categories for faculty at various career stages, community engagement professionals, 
and colleges and universities themselves. So uh, go to compact.org. You can find out about all of that and uh, get engaged. And as I said, there'll be new stuff coming soon and we'll uh, let you know about that, but also just keep checking the website. That sounds good. So, you know, lots going on in people's lives right now, but if you have some opportunities to, um, get together, learn from others, get some new ideas going into the fall. I think those are great ways to do that and certainly something we all can use. So should we get right to the interview? I'm kind of excited I think we about should. it. Yeah, okay. why not? I did not conduct this interview, but I did play a role in making it happen. So on the podcast this week, we have Irene Fernando. Um, Irene is well known in Minnesota and was to be the keynote speaker at our Minnesota Campus Compact Awards event this past April that because reasons we're all aware of, did not occur. So I was excited to find another outlet for Irene to share her story with our network because it is a really fascinating story. Um, After graduating in Minnesota, she founded an organization called Students Today Leaders Forever, really aligns with our mission in terms of getting students engaged in service, relationships, action, helping to reveal their leadership in those ways, and has done some really great work in Minnesota and across the country. Um, She worked there then for 11 years and did a lot to create jobs and recruit talent into Minnesota, which I'm excited about, of course. Um, She served as a Bush Foundation fellow and has taught social entrepreneurship. And most recently, in 2018, she became a Hennepin County Commissioner for District 2. Anybody who knows me knows I get real fired up about local government. And in Minnesota, the county commissions are very important to the fabric of communities and success and equity. So she has a really important job to play there and um, was one of the first two people of color to serve on that county commission. So um, she just has a very interesting story and really excited to hear her interview with Mounty Soul. And I will just add as a program note, in case you didn't say it, because I'm just not sure that the interview was conducted back in April. I did forget and to say that. In Hennepin County, Minnesota, that matters a lot, right? Hennepin County is where Minneapolis is, very different context. So just to be clear that this interview was conducted yes. then. Yes, we are sharing a slightly oldie but a goodie. Again, an interview conducted 30 seconds ago, I think, would be considered old at this point with everything going on. But yes, knowing when it was conducted, I think, is really important to the context of the specific local community and our whole country. So that's really helpful. Nevertheless, Irene had a lot of great things to share, and we'll go right to that interview. Irene, this is the first time we're meeting, but I've um, heard a lot about you and your work from um, our Campus Compact uh, director from Iowa, Minnesota, uh, Emily Shields. And so I'm excited to 
um, get to know you a little bit more and have you share with our audience a little bit about your story. So I think if you can just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you um, got involved with uh, student leadership and uh, community action. Yeah, definitely. Well, nice to meet you uh, in, in, in person and excited to be invited to the space. So my name is Irene Fernando. I grew up in Los Angeles County in a city called Carson, California. Um, my parents are from the Philippines. And so I grew up in this very large and lively uh, setting where, you know, one had to learn how to have a voice. Let's say it, let's put it like that. And so uh, although I grew up pretty introverted and, and quite shy in many ways, uh, through that upbringing, I was able to find ways to develop an opinion and, and saw the value in, in making my voice heard uh, first as a, as a much younger student and then through a high school, really through um, leadership positions with community service with, we call it associated student body. So, you know, student council, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so I, I begin that far back in many ways because my early career as a youth worker really rests on the idea that every single person, every single young person, regardless of their age, has leadership already within them. We we do a lot about how we can find external validation for that leadership or external training. I think that's important. Um, And I believe very, very strongly that each person has something that they can add this moment, not after the next semester, not after some certification, not, uh, of course, after those two. And we, uh, we need, in my opinion, young people to be occupying as much space as they possibly can as they, uh, as they envision uh, the world that, that they seek to, to create and then contribute to that world. Uh, so I moved to Minnesota to attend the University of Minnesota when I was a freshman. I was 17. I have this wonderful late night story where um, some new friends of mine and I were talking about how scared we were to be in college. And it's so funny, like there's so many freshman stories. And for some reason, we don't talk about the one that I think is most common. And it's what are we doing here? How how are we going to become known for here? Um, especially for me, those first few weeks, it was, what's your major? Where are you from? Where are you living? I could have made a shirt that just said those two <laughs> things. And that would have been the the substance of my conversations. Right. And so I found myself up late. Um, I'm pretty sure we like had gone to the, you know, the student hall before it closed at midnight or whatever and <laughs> loaded up our pockets and whatnot. And for the first time I found myself in this substantive emotional conversation talking about what I was scared about and what I was anxious about and what I was excited for. And through that, uh, my friends and I started asking ourselves other questions that, that vulnerability created space Mm. that, that authentic connection created space for other questions. Those questions being, what would it look like for a freshman to, to make a, a difference on campus? How can, how might we, you know, create, a, you know, go beyond the stereotype, you know, what would it look like to, and I mean, we were bright eyed teenagers. So what would it look like to change the world? Right. How would that feel? What does that mean? And so 2000, 2003, I'm 17 years old. And we uh, decided what if we did something over spring break, right? So that's, that's the scope of kind of, um, of, of, uh, of, 
our influence, you know, we were also living at our parents' houses or at, at college. And, and so did you that come from a family of like that were involved in the community or like were your parents activists or? I was not. No. So um, and I think this kind of follows some of the, the data lines. My uh, my Filipino upbringing has a lot of communal elements to it, mm-hmm. um, but did not grow up in politics, did not grow up in activism, did not grow up. Uh, you know, doing the community service project as a family. Um, and so I think that we have a lot of those values, hence perhaps, you know, why, why I'm one expression of those. But this was not a part of my kind of business as usual or anything like that. Right. So my freshman year of college, we convinced uh, my friends and I, 43 of us total, we convinced our closest friends. <laughs> and we went on a spring break trip uh, that March. And we, um, from Minneapolis, Washington, D.C. and back, we stopped at major cities along the way. We did service projects in the morning, community service, um, excuse me, travel and tourism in the afternoon. And then we did reflection activities in the evening. And, and you we guys organized party. it yourself? Yes, oh I know. God. It was hysterical, yeah. right? Yeah. So we took a charter bus. So we certainly had a lot of help, but we were really drawing from our own experiences. Mm-hmm. We were the focus group. We said, Wow, how how like all this stuff got unlocked when we just got an authentic relationship with peers. Let's do that. Right. Um, the the um, the experiential playing field was leveled when we uh, did an activity together, and that and that activity being service projects. And then we were teenagers who hadn't seen the nation, so we just wanted to visit places. So we like put New York on there. We all wanted to visit New York, you know? And so, so um, certainly there were times of clunkiness, don't get me wrong, but there is this like really, you know, I think quite powerful and and really um, authentic expression that's a place because of that. And so all of that to say, um, I ended up being at the organization Student Today Leaders Forever for about 11 years. We grew it all started. It all started through that spring break trip. Started through the very first spring break trip. We grew it all through college. We expanded to other chapters. We expanded to the high school level, the middle school level. Um, We hired ourselves after graduation. That was my full time. That was our full time jobs. I was there for about 11 years. Our mission uh, was to reveal leadership Mm. through service relationships and action. To reveal uh, through service with and for others, building relationships and a commitment to action, what what can get unlocked in a person. Uh, About 22,000 students were served during my 11 years there. And um, certainly has has been, has laid a a very powerful foundation in terms of the ways in which I lead and and the potential and uh, that I see in people. So how long has it been since you left the organization or formerly working for it? Yeah, so I left in um, 2014. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. And so you talked a little bit about like kind of what inspired you to create the organization, um, but what are you doing now? Yeah, so typically I begin my uh, speeches these days uh, saying that I'm Commissioner Irene Fernando, but you can call me Commish. And so... Uh, uh, most counties have governing bodies that have that are based off of like population size and, and whatnot. So in Minnesota, there's 87 counties and our counties are governed by groups of five to seven people. Okay. So I am one seventh of a governing body that oversees um, two and a half billion dollars or so with a B. Mm-hmm. 
So Beyonce and Jay-Z's combined net worth is just one half of what the county spends each year. I have a little bit of a pause because counties generally have a really integral public health response. So in in current time, there is uh, expenditures are are certainly very, very different today than they uh, they have been in previous years. Um, In Minnesota, counties are by statute required to serve our most vulnerable. And so again, uh, we are in a global crisis. Resources have never been distributed equitably and crisis is not distributed equitably. So I have a little bit of a, an asterisk on some of our scope. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, uh, I am one seventh of the governing body in the most populous, uh, most populated and uh, largest county by budget in Minnesota. Is it I'm also the, the most diverse county in, yep, Minnesota? in Minnesota? Yeah. And so we, uh, we have about 45 cities and it includes Minneapolis, uh, just for, for sake of contextualization. I'm the youngest woman to be elected to this body uh, alongside a colleague of mine who got elected the same year. We're the first commissioners of color on this body. Uh, and in the state of Minnesota, I'm the um, only Filipino to be elected on any level. And um, yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations. That's so what made you kind of want to make that transition from like community based work or nonprofit work to uh, politics to government? Yeah, good question. So this is kind of gets a little bit when you were asking about activism. Um, I think a lot of people who uh, occupy my identities and or have the values that I have either expressed or will soon express on this call, uh, tend to have uh, some sort of formal activism or movement work or organizing in their background. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's wonderful. We need a lot more of a lot of things in in these institutional positions. Uh, That wasn't my path. My path really began with leadership as a value, as, as as an expression of values versus a positional title. Um, so my experience with, as a young person and with young people is, is what roots me there. While I was rooting myself in this value expression of leadership, I found myself, um, you know, when I look back, that period of my life really was about encouraging myself and encouraging others to dream about the world they wish to create. This, this makes a lot of sense, especially on, on uh, college campuses, right? Like what, what would you envision for the world? What, what world do you want to be able to get up every day and go to, et cetera, et cetera, that type of framing. As time went on and I, um, and as a young person, so I had a, I had these titles, these titles that were larger than my age. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm 22 as a co-executive director, 25, um, you know, being asked to be on these boards, et cetera. And so, so during that period, it was not only what world do you wish to create, but what are you willing to do? How hard are you willing to work? What partnerships are you willing to construct in order to build that world? Okay, so that, that, that makes a lot of sense too. And so I was focusing a lot on how are we looking across systems, but I was still one nonprofit leader. Right. I was going to the consortiums, you know, I was going to, to the conferences and, and around those tables. Well, um, as, as I began, as I continued to, to strengthen and involve in my own kind of positioning and, and theory of change, if you will, uh, it was then not only what world do I wish to create, what am I willing to do for that world, but what am I willing to give up? Hmm. That is key. What are you willing to give up? What am I willing to sacrifice? Not just a trade-off, not just I'll get to it later. 
what am I willing to, to sacrifice, to create, to invent, to risk in order to pursue the idea of that future world? And it is through, uh, it is from that set of, set of questions and intersections that uh, government was a relatively natural next kind of place to go because of the scale by which government makes decisions. Right. Um, I'll, put, I'll put it financially just to kind of drive the point home if that's all right. Uh, it took me a little over a decade and my team to get to about a million and a half dollars of operating budget in our nonprofit. That's sizable for a nonprofit. That's actually right. kind of big. Um, then I was in kind of corporate-sized nonprofits um, and, so, and, and, and co-op work. In that work, um, I was able to grow to maybe like a ten million dollar set of impacts. Not that I was go- not that I was managing that, but my decisions had that level of impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I outlined earlier, I make I influence uh, decisions on the scale of billions, on hundreds right. of millions. And so, uh, so that's how that's how I got to government and uh, specifically counties or the types of decisions that I'm making and who I'm advocating for. I am leading in this position to advocate for those who are marginalized or structurally disenfranchised. And I think counties are uniquely positioned to be able to advance those, those areas. Yeah. Sort of speaking about um, the marginalized and the structurally uh, disenfranchised, um, obviously like COVID-19 has exposed a lot of that. Those of us who've worked with these kinds of systems, um, critiques and analysis have known this for a while, but this has really exposed it at a deep, deep level um, that we're seeing the impact now um, in, in thousands of lives lost. So for you, who's working at a county level, who um, has, you know, um, decision-making, um, who's looking at things like, right, county governments are, are very important into public health, what are the things that you're seeing right now um, as sort of markers for, for change or, or ways that either you feel your county has been responding um, in really important ways or ways that um, you think we need to kind of adjust for whatever a new normal will be? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I first want to start with uh, that I, I don't subscribe to the idea that our systems are broken. I I don't believe that our systems are broken. They have never worked for all of us because they were never designed for all of us. Right. They exist off of centuries old systems that place certain lives over others in our law. So just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. Um, so I just want to begin there because I think that uh, when people discuss the exposure of our broken system, our systems, I believe, are functioning incredibly well. They're just functioning very well for historically a, a certain set of populations. Now, what is being exposed is how intricately linked right. our stories really are. That, you know, and so I, I hope that. Um, some of these, you know, yesteryear, yesterdecade promises of um, that, that those that I hope that that exposure is is where our our collective uh, intellect will land. I'm, I'm not certain that that is where our collective intellect and our collective heart will land. But I just want to be really clear in terms of kind of my my belief on that. So uh, to get to some of the tactics of, of your question, 
Okay, so there are some laws that don't make sense. And so from really from a resident viewpoint, uh, this uh, the pandemic is is the cause for us being able to interrogate everything. Yeah. So whether it is DMV work or marriage certificates or even death certificates, there's a certain amount of work that that is as it is presently um, outlined. Look at even voting. Like right. there are these in-person requirements, even if it's not face-to-face, someone has to be physically somewhere. But but with all the remote working and the work from home, which I fully acknowledge is an immense privilege. Right. Home, you know, implies work and home and reliability and a, a whole set of things. Access and yeah. Right. Like a ton of stuff. And still, like, wh- why are all of these sets of services offered only in the daytime, only in certain settings, not very accessible, et cetera. So like there's, there's a set of things that we can even almost call it administrative that I, that I hope we'll be able to kind of get through. There are other things that people might not have realized, such as internet currently being a commodity, not a utility. Right. Uh, with states mandating distance learning for young people, with colleges and universities mandating distance learning for their students, how is it that we are in a space where the thing that binds us all outside of equipment being being the internet is treated as a commodity, treated as something that that can be bid, that that I can pay for better service just because I have, you know, greater fi- financial backing or, or whatnot. So then there's things like that. Um, you know, in terms of where the counties hang out mostly, it's, you know, I, I believe we are getting at better um, results that happen aligned with my ideology, but we're getting there at a public health response. So I'll be specific. Right. We are uh, we are trying to find much more dignified housing when we look at congregate settings. So think of shelters mm-hmm. or encampments. Now, I ideologically believe that, that should be the case anyway, but right now we have a public health reason by which we must. Same thing with jails or prisons or correctional facilities. Um, we have the ability to do electronic home monitoring. We have the ability to to engage differently and more assortively with respect to public safety and criminal justice. Um, and ideology aside, via a public health response, we're able to advance that. So, so there are things in that space um, that I think are are also a, a a way that we can make the right decision today, and then allow us to have a really robust conversation for for kind of future implementation. Um, and I guess last, but, uh, definitely not least just where resources go. I mean, if, if there, I, I would, I, I would love to be in a really calm, intellectual sound conversation around why it makes sense for the vast majority of profits to go to people that are not anywhere near the frontline implementation. Right. That is, um, that is certainly not a, uh, that that is not a universally held belief at this current moment. Yeah. Thanks. No, it's it's uh it's in some ways it's both simple and and complex, right? It's um simply because we've created structures that are built on uh dehumanization and uh valuing some over others and it's complex because the way that it's embedded across everything we do and how we live um and how it impacts, um, you know, every aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. So can you share with us, like, 
maybe I think you alluded to it a little bit, but what was that transformational moment for you where you realized like your own power and agency to, to become a, a community leader? Um, and yeah, let's, let's leave it at that. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't have this great story about a certain moment, uh, which, which always kind of surprises people um, given you know, what my accomplishments, but also even at times my personality, I have been very value centered. I know how I want to lead. I know, um, I, I know the, the energy and the inputs and the, and the ways that I hope to, to have leadership, you know, be expressed in, in my lifestyle and in my choices and my decisions. I also know who I'm serving and why I'm motivated to lead. And um, I share that because even now, it's actually more common now. People will ask, well, what are you going to run for next? And, and with as, prod, with as a kind of process-oriented and deliverable-oriented as I can be, I don't have this path mm. of the jobs I will have next. I know very much the ways in which I hope those who are marginalized and disenfranchised live differently. I have a very specific... Uh, set of values that I hope are embedded in the way our systems will transform moving forward. And so um, I, I think for me, it's less about a moment around occupying a space, but it's been more around a series of a lot of really authentic interactions with what would be considered ordinary people, people that um, people that are often not in the rooms and, and that, that to me is what really drives me that, um, that the, the weight of that responsibility and the privilege of being able to carry with me many, many, many told and untold stories of those mm -hmm. that have come before me is, is more what, uh, what strikes me, um, Part of that is likely because my parents are immigrants and I have a high proximity to, to uh, immigrant stories, uh, stories of those who are undocumented, stories uh, of people who are, um, who were, you know, either don't belong here or don't belong there or don't belong somewhere. And, and I, uh, I draw a lot of, uh, a lot of strength from the idea that ordinary people at some point paved path that didn't exist. And so um, how can how can I, as an ordinary person, continue to pave path where, where one may not exist so that others can can do do so later? That's great. Um, it makes me think, I don't know which book or poem, but like you make your path by walking it. And so, you know, figuring out which opportunities come up and the ways that you are some ways kind of directed, right, by your ancestors or the spirits or, or whatever. Um, so a lot of your work has also focused on equity. So you, can you share with us, like, how do you define equity and how do you work to, to advance that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I believe that those uh, on the edges are who gets to define equity. And so I really wrestle with, um, with the highly academic or clinical decision-making tables somewhere who are uh, defining equity through some set of methods that um, 
that don't work for the people that are being studied. Now, I love academia. I'm in a program right now. I am all about methods. Like I am down for that. And and equity must be defined by whoever has less institutional power. That's that's just so I, I want to start there. And so I think equity is an experience. Um, I I sound at times a bit kind of abstract, but it is which is kind of true. I'm I'm really abstract until I bring something into focus. And so, equity writ large, it is an experience. It's broad. That's dynamic. We need to have a lot of conversations about that. When we talk about health equity, which is very very top of mind right now, or yeah. or housing equity. Um, I can become more further defined. It, it certainly is where people who are who have a disproportionate disparity that that's an easy place where uh, to to identify where equity equity exists, or excuse me, where inequity exists. Um, and and then what is seen as valid or not? You know. Let's take uh, something like child protection services. That's that's generally something falls within the purview of the county. So who's to say that me speaking with a certain tone or a certain speed or a certain volume is safe or unsafe? Well, unfortunately, our laws have told us who gets to say that. And it might not always align with uh, that that cultural expression. And so I think uh, when decision makers and are are so different from those who are implementing the work or those impacted by the work. That's another place where, where inequity presents itself uh, pretty readily. So how do I advance that? I mean, one way was by me getting into all these rooms that, that uh, people didn't even know existed. That's kind of step one. Uh, I believe that unless and until a critical mass of leaders a critical mass of people in positions of power work to structurally redistribute that power and make decisions at a disadvantage to themselves that we, we likely won't be able to advance uh, equity in a scaled manner. That's a lot to ask. You know, I mean, I'm essentially saying, can we get people from marginalized identities, from backgrounds, from economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, uh, that that from from stories and narratives that have always been on the edge work you work so hard at immense disservice to yourself and your family to get into these rooms and then try to not reap any of the benefits try to redistribute the power uh, via your decisions that's a lot it's a lot to ask uh, but that that's how I think that we would be able to advance it yeah thank you so what inspires you like when you get up in the morning what do you like what uh, gives the pep in your step? What what inspires you? Who do you who do you think about um, as you're kind of going forward and do the, doing this work? Because I imagine it's it's not easy. There are days when all those structural pieces sort of are standing in front of you, and you may have to maneuver around them or through them. So, what inspires you? Well, I'll go on the record and say that I'm not a morning person. All these <laughs> articles that say you needed to have worked out and read seven books yeah, by whatever morning. I just, I just want to go on the record <laughs> and be very clear that none of that is a part of my day. And so just, just to add a little, uh, a little joke in there. Um, you know, what I was saying about ordinary people paving path where there was, was none. I, I am, I am, oh, it always causes me pause 
to think about the the many many ways that our stories are interconnected and it's almost always just the regular person that wasn't asking to be the leader or wasn't presuming that they would be and so i draw a lot of energy from that mm-hmm. um i draw a lot of responsibility and strength to um the the difficult part of being a first or an only is that i'm a first and i'm an only that that many many people before me um took on risks and they fought many died for the chance to for me to sit in a certain seat and how, how do i how do i make sure i am enough of myself and that i'm strong enough that day then that, that i am uh sound enough of mine to be able to to assess and calculate and and occupy as much of of that responsibility as possible the numbers are staggering mm. are just staggering i mean m- you know minnesota's um the homogenous nature of of minnesota holistically compared to other states uh is striking what's what's further alarming is the disparities that exist here we're we're the top of every single list when it comes to livability income you name it unless you add a racial lens right right and then you add on top of that i mean you know hennepin's been around hennepin county's been around for 168 years we should i shouldn't be the first and so so I, I draw a lot of, of strength via responsibility from from those types of sentiments and 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 work really hard to make sure that I'm saying centered on my values and I'm focused on the who I'm I'm seeking to serve and, and that I'm casting enough imaginative vision. Uh, times of crisis are times of restructuring and reimagining and and we must be demanding some of that now, but we need to be in a space to even be able to imagine. Right. In order in order to advance that type of thinking. Mm. And um, so, is your family still in California? Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. My family in the Philippines and in California. I guess I used to live in California. I was I lived in San Bernardino uh, for a while. Oh, nice. But I'm born and raised in Chicago, so I moved back here a couple of years ago. Um, because I have a teenage son, he wanted to be close to his dad, so. Mm-hmm. We moved back. So I'm sure your family is very proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, in true immigrant form, my, uh, at my victory party, big party. I mean, I'm, I like parties. Yeah. So I threw a big party, you know, victory party. Okay. I won historic collection. My mom literally went on and like roasted me the, for the first few minutes of her speech. About, like, <laughs> how clumsy I was as a kid, how reckless my sisters are. And anyway, in peak, Peak kid of immigrant fashion. Um, uh, I actually shout out. I did a shout out to immigrants and kid of, kids of immigrants after this part. She ended her speech not with a thank you or congrats. She said, "Irene, fulfill your promises because that is what is expected." And so I, <laughs> it was really funny because afterwards I said, "Shout out to immigrants and kids of immigrants," and I was kind of surprised. Like over half the audience like erupted, and so I think. Um, you know, there is something to, there is, there is a, there is a connectivity there for, of course, it's not exclusive to, to immigrant households, but like we expect a lot of people. Yeah. And so go and do that. Yeah. 
because yeah. you said you would. And I kind of like that vibe, especially in these days. Like we we can't put um, we can't put the vibrancy of our communities on the other side of something like it has to be on this side. Mm-hmm. And, and we might not see the success in our lifetimes. And yet I hope enough of us still select the path of of pursuing that. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a great strength that comes from seeing, you know, the sacrifice that, you know, parents and grandparents make for, you know, future generations. And you know that story as you kind of grow up, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the the family narrative that becomes so embedded in um, the identities of, of immigrants and, and their kids. Um, so let's do our last question. Um, so what role do you feel that young people, students, um, higher education have and sort of what comes next after, as we're sort of dealing or thinking about a new normal, what role does higher education and young people mostly um, have for what comes next? You did a lot of work with students and student leadership, so um, Well, this year's an election year. And so beyond voting, because voting is a part of it, you know, what are the types of pressures that are being created to make way for a very specific set of new conversations? Um, power is not granted. It's almost always demanded or at times um, pre- conditions created where it's it's then required to, to be to be kind of taken. Um, I'm no expert in in the history of how uh, many of, of today's rights have been um, have been fought and and won and and some lost. Uh, but I I definitely know that the institutions were, are not just doling out you know power and decision making uh, unto themselves. Those conditions have to be created. And we need a, a lot of people from a lot of different viewpoints in order in order to demand that. So uh, one of the biggest things with um, with voting are the down ballot elections. I'm a down ballot or even back of the ballot election. Mm-hmm. I'm not partisan. So even this whole like, you know, vote for the party all the way down. Um, my, there was were no letters next to my name. Some people had to know enough to flip the back to the back of the ballot and then had to know my name. And so I, I have a lot of probably very biased. I have a lot of uh, emphasis towards local elections, uh, specifically county elections. Um, so so of course, there there's voting. Uh, I hope that there's a different set of conversations with respects to jobs. Yeah. Clearly, jobs having your health care and then you losing your job and then losing your health, like, there's clearly a disconnect there, uh, a, a really harmful, appalling set of disconnects there. Um, there's clearly a disconnect between corporations and taxes and um, and where where those uh, you know how they're meant to contribute to the overall ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So right now, for example, shipping, of course, is being highly encouraged. Who paves the roads? Government does. Who who funds the the postal service? Government does. And so when uh, when these large organizations are not contributing to to the tax base that falls onto residents, 
Right. It has to be like an economic conversation there. I would hope, I would think when that could be created also uh, contributed to by students. Um, I mentioned the, um, the internet, internet piece with distance learning. Again, what are the set of, you know, what are, what are people being required to do and how is that a public good? Mm -hmm. And how is that kind of in the law? So I, I think that there's, you know, my advice, generally speaking, especially to students, is first and foremost, never, ever assume that there's a group of people advocating on your behalf. Yeah. I know. It's like, I, I'm not like the lightest or most you know, <laughs> joyful, maybe, of <laughs> these advice, but it's literally how I begin, even with, um, even with really young students. Yeah. So first and foremost, never presume that a group of people is advocating on your behalf. Second, if you are lucky enough to have a group of people advocating on your behalf, do not presume that they are inherently smarter than you. Do not presume that they are inherently more qualified, which leads to point three. You today have a set of experiences, narratives, viewpoints, platforms that if focused, you can contribute to to the narrative. Now, I've been kind of abstract about a lot of things. This is where I get really goal-oriented. I'm not saying some long, long list of all the stuff that you hope to, wish to, think you should do. How do we get really focused? Because uh, the benefit that institutions have is that they're the institution. Institutions don't have to work hard to exert power because they already have it. Um, I'll give a really specific example, which, um, which, uh, you know, well, you could certainly cut out. It has a relationship to sexual violence, and so um, should should you include it, uh, I would I would note note that. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the state of Minnesota, up until June thirtieth of twenty nineteen, it was uh, legally defensible in our state statutes and our laws to um, for a spouse to rape their spouse. It was called the marital rape exception. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that only got reverted or, or became unlawful July 1 of last year. Now, one might ask how, why? Mm-hmm. It actually draws from British common law. Because these laws, laws, unless they are, unless they are expired, unless they say in the law that they expire, which what law would ever do that? Right. Stays on the books. It stays in the books. Yeah. So like that's how much smarter, stronger, more precise we, now I have to say we loosely because so now I'm also the institution. Right. But that is how, how much, that is how much uh, more specific we have to be. And so my encouragement to students uh, is keep it value centered, know who you're serving and why you're serving them and get specific on, on what it is on, on, on the visions that, that you're seeing. Cause that is, that is what will be required to overturn and to create a different um, set of set of conditions moving forward. Oh, cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then what do you think that um, those of us uh, older, you know, adults can do to support young people? So uh, my answer when I was younger was, uh, and so I'll begin there. I think that this still stands. <clears throat> we as uh, we as uh, older adults, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm going to say we both now. So, so it happens as as people get older, we have more on our plates. We have a different kind of 
outlook. We have seen a lot of things succeed and we've seen a lot of things not succeed. And so I think we can get kind of tactical. Mm. A young person comes into the office or text, so I have this idea. Um, we're not meaning to shoot it down, but we believe that we're providing the contextual, tactical advice needed for you to complete the thing. So the first point of advice I would say is really interrogate, is that what they need? Because you can tell uh, a kid all day long, it might hurt when they fall off the bike for the first time and they're gonna fall off the bike at some point and they're gonna have their own experience with that. And so um, not that you shouldn't do it, but to interrogate is, is that needed right now? Mm. Or are a set of questions actually needed right now? Or um, or encouragements or considerations. So again, you know, depending upon what the idea is, you might need to intervene. But actually, I think many times uh, intervention is not needed. They, they will kind of pursue that and sort that out. Uh, that was an immense benefit that I received as a teenager. We had adults. I don't know if it was because they didn't know how to say no. Um, I don't know if it was because I didn't know how to speak Midwestern yet. And I just didn't hear the no. I have learned now over a decade later how many times I got no. And I just like full on had no yeah. idea. Yo, I'm talking like 15 years later. I'm like, oh, that was something else? 15 years. Yeah. So I have been informed more recently how inaccurate I have been perceiving uh, the, the world. But whatever. I mean, to my benefit. Uh, that, that leads to my, my first uh, piece of advice. Um, the second one is developing a practice by which, um, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s. I am consistently investing in, in my practice to really hear young people as peers. Mm, yeah. Um, and so it is really, really easy to say, cute, cute, cute whatever. That's, that's nice try. Um, and my entire existence, I have been in leadership positions that are far, far, far outside of my age expectation. And so, uh, I, I need to develop a practice of, of being able to hear young people as peers, as you know, in, in the way that, that I was able to, to kind of receive that. That's really important. Thank you. Um, I guess, is there anything else that you want to share um, that you think would be important? This is a pretty weird time. I mean, we say unprecedented, unparalleled, unimaginable. Um, and it's, it's, it's likely very disorienting. We, we have both extremes. We have the best television and poetry and music and the most representative art that we've ever had at our fingertips. You know, we, and, and we can spend all day long even kind of consuming and experiencing, um, you know, really, really beautiful things that 10, 20, 40 years ago would not have been at this kind of scale. Right. Um, and then on the other extreme, what, what does hope or happiness or success or the dream look like for me individually? That's, that's likely very disorienting. So I'm, I'm hoping I encourage uh, all people and specifically students to reimagine what, what that long-term success dream looks like. 
I'm not presuming that anybody thought it was two and a half kids in a white picket fence, but that's, that was the little narrative that, you know, would, uh, was present, you know, in my, in my time, you know, you get your degree and you do the thing. And luckily for me growing up in LA, I saw a ton of different versions of success. So I didn't bound myself to that. Uh, but having spent a lot of time uh, across the country, there is still a lot that is bound to these right. relatively linear narratives of success and really individualistic narratives of success. And so um, we didn't pick this time to be alive. We happen to be here. And uh, I hope and, and encourage uh, a, a reimagining and a more collective view on, on how you might be able to contribute your minutes and how, how you might be able to really invest in a future that you are proud to pass on to future generations. Awesome. Well, thank you. Appreciate you sharing. Appreciate your time and uh, congratulations and good luck. Okay. Welcome back. Hope everyone enjoyed that conversation. Um, so the two of us are just going to talk a little bit about what's sparking joy. I got to say, as we discussed earlier, I'm I'm digging deep. It has been a long time at home with kids, and that's continuing. And uh, you know, life is good and also hard. But uh, I think what sparked joy for me is what sparked joy for a lot of people this past week and weekend, which was the release of Hamilton on Disney Plus. I did have the opportunity, thanks to our amazing colleague, Natalie Furlett in Illinois, to see Hamilton live in Chicago the year before last. Um, my children have listened to the soundtrack quite a bit. So getting to watch it with them was really, really exciting and fun. Jonathan Groff as King George is the absolute like best thing that's ever happened to the world. Probably um, all of the talent is just really incredible. And I loved the cast we got to see in Chicago, but the original is just something to behold. So I will say that in the middle of it all that has brought us, and it seems like a lot of other people, quite a bit of joy. So Andrew, what's uh, now I know you're going to be a stick in the mud and say that you haven't seen Hamilton. So fine. What is sparking joy for you? I'm sorry. I thought the category was sparks jealousy <laughs> and that would be uh, Hamilton. Yes. Cause I haven't seen it. I'm not, not so much a stick in the mud as just like a loser. I think that's the, uh, the right. Do category. I need to give you my Disney plus password? Uh, I don't know if we should discuss this on the air. <laughs> Uh, you can just tell everybody what it is. I'll just say it on the air. That'll yeah, be fine. Exactly. Yes. Uh, maybe if you gave them your uh, email and uh, whatever, that would help. Um, I've got two sparks joys, joy sparks, whatever the right nounal form is, uh, I, I, which I think is okay because Marisol's not here. So we're down a sparks joy. So I'm claiming hers. Uh, one is uh, Campus Compact Summer Interns. So we have an army of interns, a peaceful army of interns um, who come to us courtesy of uh, our friends at the Square Center at Brown University and the Pace Center at Princeton University, uh, you know, in the 
complex turmoil of people not having to um, not being able to fulfill, you know, plans for physical internships, etc. They were looking around for partners for virtual internships. And we had a lot of things that uh, great students could do this summer. And uh, so it's been terrific. I have two who are working with me on research for various projects that I'm working on, um, Oscar and Phoebe, and they are fantastic. And uh, the whole group who's with Campus Compact has been terrific to start to get to know. So we're excited about that. And uh, for me, having spent like a long period of my career on campuses and then not, you know, there's a lot that I don't miss about the insanity of being inside an institution of higher education. But one thing I always miss is that I love spending time around students. So this has been very fun. Uh, the second thing, I just read a great piece of writing that I wanted to mention. So I think like today on the Internet, uh, which won't be the day people hear this, but today on the Internet, there's a lot of attention to this open letter in Harper's from a whole bunch of folks who are concerned about their view that uh, there's a kind of uh, anti-free speech vibe that has emerged as whatever. I don't need to articulate what their view is. You can go read the letter. It'll take you 34 seconds. But there's a piece that, if I understand the sequencing correctly, was not written in response to that letter because I think it came out before it, but it reads as a really good response to that letter. So it's by a a journalist named Osita Nuanevu. It's in The New Republic. The piece is called The Willful Blindness of Reactionary Liberalism. And it's just a really good piece of writing about what the what the real values of liberalism are. And from the author's perspective, why the, the idea that the kind of identity-based movements that have moved into the fore in the context of racial justice, whatever. His argument is uh, the notion that they are in opposition to the real values of liberalism is just a deep misunderstanding of the liberal tradition. It's a really good piece of writing. Um, Like, you know, I'm a political theorist by training. I'm into that stuff, but it's written, I think, in a very accessible way, um, but also a way that anybody who's kind of deep into that stuff would take seriously. So I just really enjoyed reading the piece and recommend it. And as I said, it, it happens that the timing, which I think is a coincidence, is it just reads as a really good response to that position. So if you're interested in seeing what is the thoughtful reply to that letter, uh, this, I think, counts as the answer. I will definitely check that out. I have seen some of the discourse about said letter, but not this particular piece, which sounds more beneficial and engaging than some of the discourse. Yes, yeah, and it's a piece of writing that takes very seriously the people that it's critiquing um, and all that. But um, did I say it's in the New Republic? I can't remember if I said that. You did say that, and I have already found it. So there we are. All right. Well, thanks, Andrew. And thanks, Marisol, in in absence in this conversation, but not the podcast for the interview and Irene for joining us. As always, we benefit when you subscribe and tell your friends and rate us and review us and all those things help get the word out that we at the very least have some really interesting guests on the show. Um, <laughs> and maybe like some a, other interesting know, what, what's this Am I crisis an existential crisis? Yeah, I, don't I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a thing. No, we're great. It's the best podcast ever. Tell everybody about it. What am I even talking about? 
but yes, thank you. And we will still be back with one more episode for this season. If you have noticed, we normally would have taken a break by now, but stuff and things are happening. We've had more interviews, so we will be back with one more this summer and then go on a little bit of a hiatus into the fall as we regroup and look for some great guests. And we are always looking for your ideas in that category too. So if you want to send us ideas for topics or guests, you can email us at podcast at compact org or just post it on social media hashtag compact nation pod we'll find it and we'll look for those great people to bring on the show thanks so much bye-bye Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compact nation pod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.